think we only have a few people on. We're, we typically give people, let's see. Five minutes. You know, the old saw about how you get the people to a conference on time? Yeah. How is it? Well, how? You offer food. Yeah. But not, but not quite enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is a good one. That makes perfect sense, actually. <laughs> yep. Okay. Um, I have to click this thing that says, yes, I know it's being recorded. Okay, I'm all set. All right. Uh, so you, well, you, you, okay. Thank you, Carol. I'm going to mute myself because I, it's, um, how do I mute myself? Let's see. I do mute down here. That way it will be less distracting. So uh, if you need me for anything, just buzz me. Okay, will do. Thank you. All right. I think I will go ahead and um, and get started. It looks like we have about, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We have 10 people. I'm going to call that quorum. So, um, so the title of my talk today is The Alternative Pathway of Complement and Vascular Disease and Chronic Kidney Disease, um, a Potential Link. And I probably should have included a question mark at the end of my title. Um, and I, I like to think of this as not so much a renal grand rounds as much as a research conference um, where um, uh, I will show you some interesting findings and tell you a, a story of research that I got involved in. Um, these are my disclosures, um, none of which actually have anything to do with the topic at hand. Um, so as you all know, we, we always talk about this, and, and I teach this a lot in clinic, patients with chronic kidney disease are more likely to die prior to reaching end-stage kidney disease. And this is an old study um, which was published in actually 2004, so over 15 years ago, from a group in Kaiser Permanente, where they evaluated patients within their data set above the age of 17 years of age and followed them, looked over a period of follow-up of five years um, to see you know, what outcome was most likely. Um, and, and this study um, sort of became the landmark that we all cite for patients with CKD are more likely to die prior to reaching end-stage kidney disease, which in this study was defined as either dialysis or kidney transplantation. Um, and death is the black, and you can see for every stage of CKD, whether you're looking at stage two, three, or four CKD, the risk of death is considerably higher. That same year, out of Kaiser Permanente came this manuscript that looked at the risk of cardiovascular disease in patients with CKD. Um, and what they showed is that as GFR declines, you have an increased risk of death from any cause. You specifically have an increased risk of cardiac death in addition to an increased risk of hospitalization. This study actually included a really large sample size. It was over a million of the Kaiser studies. And collectively, both of these large data studies spurred a huge interest in why there is a strong connection between cardiovascular and kidney disease. And I have to say that the link between the vasculature and the kidney has always uh, been, well, not always, but has been recognized from a long time ago 
from some of the work that was done by Brenner and his group um, at Harvard. Um, it at the time included this classical model looking at reduced nephron mass resulting in hemodynamic adaptation which activates the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, um, activates certain prostaglandins and inhibits others. The collective effect is to increase intraglomerular pressure and preserve um, glomerular filtration rate. That group showed that the activation of these pathways was maladaptive, resulting in increased intrarenal inflammation and ultimately contributing to kidney disease progression. And this is really what gave us um, ACE inhibitors um, and subsequently ARBs. Um, more recently, as people have looked at the risk between, at the association between cardiovascular disease and, and CKD, there's been this um, uh, interest in um, in the vasculature, specifically thinking that you know perhaps it's early atherosclerosis and systemic ischemia that also contributes further to an increase um, to triggering some of these hemo hemodynamic uh, maladaptive responses within the kidney, including GRAS, um, prostaglandins, and the subsequent pathway. And more recently, people have even taken a step back where we have focused more on endothelial dysfunction, which has been the subject of studies looking at normal aging, patients with hypertension, obesity, diabetes, so on and so forth. Um, and so this is really what I study. My vascular lab measures endothelial dysfunction. We also measure vascular stiffness. Um, you know, people, some people really like this endpoint, some people don't because it tends to be something that you measure by ultrasound and it can be operator dependent and there's questions regarding its reproducibility. But for better or worse, endothelial dysfunction has actually been shown to associate with cardiovascular outcomes, including cardiovascular disease, whether it's MI, heart failure, and even cardiovascular death. Um, and the current paradigm that many people subscribe to is that you do have a component of endothelial dysfunction, which contributes to vascular disease and kidney disease, and that, you know, collectively having kidney disease and vascular disease sort of becomes a vicious cycle associated with inflammation, oxidative stress, so on and so forth. Um, and what we measure in, in my lab is endothelium-dependent dilation, which is something I learned to do in Denver. Um, it basically is, is quite simple. It's an ultrasound that goes on the brachial artery. Um, we capture um, end diastolic um, images, which are ECG R-wave gated. Um, the cuff is inflated just distal to the electron on process. It's inflated to very high pressure for five minutes to create occlusion or transient ischemia. And then um, you release and as you release, you start recording um, the diameter of the, of the vessel. And normally what should happen is um, this release should result in a, a gush of blood flow, um, which creates this sheer stress, results in the endothel endothelium releasing nitric oxide, which causes significant dilatation of the vessel. Healthy subjects will typically dilate somewhere around 10 to 15%. You know, we have patients with CKD that we measure at zero, some at six, some at four. It's very, very rare that we'll measure someone with CKD and find that they actually are around 10 or above. Um, and basically what we are measuring here is the ability of the large conduit vessel to dilate in response to nitric oxide release from the endothelium. People do believe that this to a large extent is dependent on nitric oxide, although, uh, and that's based on giving um, nitric oxide inhibitors that complete, you know, not completely, but almost completely suppress the dilatation. Nevertheless, you know, there is a component that is probably related to some other pathways within the vasculature. Um, 
And so when I was in Denver, I had um, one of my colleagues and friends approach me um, because he had become fascinated with microparticles. Um, and he studies the alternative complement pathway. He came here for a visit last year. His name is Josh Thurman. Um, and microparticles are sub-micrometer membrane vesicles. They are shed from cells in response to activation injury, and injury. They can actually be detected in healthy controls, um, but there is some evidence to indicate that they may actually be altered. Their composition may be altered um, in association with vascular and kidney diseases. Um, and the thing about them is that they can actually be um, fairly easily extracted from samples. Um, and so, in addition, around the time there was this company that had come up with a new SOMA-scan proteomics assay. Uh, you know, for, for decades, people had looked at measuring these omics, you know, there's genomics um, and um, proteomics. Proteomics have proven to be somewhat more elusive and complicated because when you take human plasma or serum and you measure um, proteins, you end up with all of these abundant proteins like albumin, which creates a lot of noise in the background and make it hard to identify signals. This particular company actually was quite innovative in their approach. Um, they came up with um, slow off-rate modified aptamers, which aptamers are basically chemically modified nucleotides. Um, and uh, they created their, their somamers, which are basically in the form of beads that bind these proteins. These bound proteins are then biotinylated, and then they are released um, uh, through a photocleavable linker. They bind them to a streptavidine head um, and end up uh, being cleaved from their proteins. And then um, these end up being um, subjected to custom DNA microarray. And this assay is, is extremely sensitive. And the company that developed it initially, when we used it, they were capable of measuring over 1,300 proteins. Now they actually have assays that can measure over 5,000. Um, and so we took that and we looked at um, patients with CKD and we looked at healthy controls. Um, we extracted their microparticles and we just ran um, one of these uh, soma assays. You can see the sample size, each one of these columns is a subject. Um, this is a heat map. So they basically um, will show you the detection levels um, of all of these variable proteins. Um, the red is really high, blue um, is actually lower, close to zero. I mean, you can see just, and we, I have to say, um, we also looked at transplant patients. So the reason Josh approached me at the time is he believed calcineurin inhibitors in transplant patients induced vascular injury, which would release microparticles and activate complement. And his hypothesis was that that was a pathway in the background that played a role in transplant-related um, cardiovascular um, disease. Um, I, at the time, felt very skeptical. I thought that we needed to have CKD patients in as a control. Um, I, you know, we, we had these, you know, um, spicy debates about how CKD is also a pro-inflammatory condition and we have immune dysregulation and so on and so forth. And so we ended up looking at a sample of transplant patients, CKD patients and healthy patients. Um, and he always jokes and says that, that uh, he was wrong and I was right. The transplant signal was actually not half as strong as the signal that we found in the CKD patients. You can see, you know, we have a lot of red here. And I did not show the transplant patients because that's that's not what I want to discuss today. Um, but you'll you'll have to take my word for it. And 
you know, he wasn't very disappointed because we identified a very strong signal for complement factor B. And when um, the analyst that we worked with um, analyzed our data, um, complement factor D was among the three top proteins that we detected in the microparticles of patients with CKD. Um, and, and just like Dr. Hunsaker was saying, factor D um, is part of the alternative complement pathway. And just for those of us who are like me and get confused, this is a very simple summary of um, complement pathways. There's basically three major pathways. They're viewed as independent, but yet they overlap. Um, and they all carry out complement activation. The classical pathway, you know, goes through C1, C4, C2, ultimately um, gets um, it results in um, activation of the C3 convertase and goes all the way down to creating uh, down onto the terminal pathway with uh, um, with the membrane attack complex. So C5B, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Um, the lectin pathway is similar um, except that uh, lectin binds the mannose on pathogens and ultimately um, heads into the terminal pathway as well. The alternative complement pathway is the one where factor D um, plays an important role. Um, and um, the way this works is that um, factor C is um, spontaneously um, hydrolyzed. They, the complement experts will tell you that the alternative pathway um, activation occurs spontaneously through a process called tickover. Um, and where C3 is spontaneously hydrolyzed, forming C3H2O. Um, it um, associates then combines with factor B, and factor D will um, interact with this complex and cleave factor B, um, releasing factor BA. So that's a complement fragment um, that I want you to remember. Um, and and subsequently, you know, continuing in the chain of the alternative pathway activation. Factor H is extremely important. So whereas factor D is the main activator of the alternative complement pathway, factor H is the main inhibitor of the alternative pathway. And the balance between the two is extremely important. Um, and so we, we looked at that. We saw this increase in, in factor D, and we thought, well, is it possible that um, this is a contributor to this um, you know, state of, of heightened inflammation and vascular disease in patients with CKD? And when you look back in the literature, there really isn't a lot on this topic. Um, there are several things that are known. Number one, dysregulation of the alternative complement pathway mediates um, certain kidney diseases like C3 glomerulopathy and hemolytic uremic syndrome, um, which we have groups here uh, at the University of Iowa who study these patients and study these pathways extensively. But in addition, you know, the endothelium is known to be exposed to complement and there is, is um, in a state of low-grade activation of the alternative pathway, which is controlled quite tightly by complement regulators. Um, in addition, the endothelium, the endothelium can produce um, certain alternative pathway proteins such as C3 and factor B, and this seems to be increased in in vitro studies in response to 
pro-inflammatory mediators like IL-6 and TNF-alpha, um, and others that are known to be increased in patients with CKD. In addition, patients who have atypical HUS are known to have higher risk of, uh, of cardiovascular disease. And so with that, we hypothesized that the alternative pathway would be activated in patients with chronic kidney disease, and that biomarkers of AP activation would correlate with endothelial dysfunction in patients with CKD. And we proceeded to um, you know, submit an application to the AHA, we got funded, and we recruited, we did a pilot study where we recruited three groups, um, healthy subjects, patients with stage three and four CKD, and patients with stage uh, three and four CKD who were also post-transplantation. Um, the inclusion criteria were they had to be adults, um, GFR had to be between 20 and 59, and they had to be able to give informed consent. Our exclusion criteria included pregnant or breastfeeding, uncontrolled hypertension, um, they couldn't be obese because that mucks with our vascular measurements. Um, you know, they, we wanted to know that they didn't have terminal cancer. Their life expectancy um, had to be greater than a year. And they couldn't have severe liver disease or heart disease. In addition, you know, if they'd had a recent hospitalization, we would wait three months before we brought them in for the study visit. They couldn't have an active infection and currently treated um, with antibiotics. And for those who had um, chronic kidney disease of their native kidneys, they had to be off immunosuppression in the last year. The subjects who fulfilled the inclusion exclusion criteria were enrolled after informed consent. The study was fairly simple. People came in for one visit. We collected their demographics and medical history, vitals, height, weight, got their blood draw, and then did um, our endothelial dependent dilation measurements. Um, in addition, we evaluated biomarkers of complement activation um, in the CKD versus the healthy controls. And we really wanted to see if biomarkers of alternative pathway correlated with endothelial independent dilation. Um, and I will show you the baseline characteristics for the CKD versus healthy controls. So again, I'm not showing you the transplant data because I think that's a, a, a separate story in and of itself. Um, but looking at the healthy controls, you can see they're younger. Um, we actually had fewer males um, none of them had a history of diabetes, whereas about 36% of those with CKD had diabetes. Um, VMI was significantly different, um, although I don't know if this is clinically um, significant. Um, blood pressure was obviously higher in those with chronic kidney disease, GFR was lower. And this is what I was describing when I was talking about percent dilation. Um, of flow-mediated dilation, you know, healthy controls are typically somewhere around 10, whereas our CKD patients um, were around 6%. And I just want to say, you know, there is a lot of confounding, obviously, you know, these subjects are not age-matched, they're not sex-matched. Um, by default, since they're healthy controls, they don't have the same burden of comorbidities. So there are big differences, but this was just a small pilot because we wanted to see if there was any um, truth um, to our hypothesis, any signal. Um, and the first thing we uh, did is we looked at the microparticles um, of, uh, of the CKD versus healthy control subjects. Um, and you can see that we confirm factor D is higher in CKD than in the healthy controls. Factor B is lower, which would be consistent. If factor D is activating the alternative complement pathway, you would expect to see some consumption um, in factor B. Um, and factor H, which is the main inhibitor of the alternative pathway, um, was no difference between both groups. There were some other differences, D3B um, fragment. CD59 uh, is a complement regulator. 
it has had um, a reproducible signal for us in our CKD patients, although we haven't really delved into why this would be increased in CKD. Um, and then we basically measured levels of complement activation fragments in the serum of CKD patients. So the previous data was microparticles. Um, this is in the plasma. And, um, you know, most notable was a significant increase in complement factor, uh, the complement fragment um, BA in the CKD patients compared to the healthy controls. Um, you know, we have received some critiques for this data, especially when we submitted this manuscript um, to a couple of journals. And one was, well, how do you know that this isn't simply reduced filtration? Um, and, and that is certainly a valid critique. And so we took all of these complement proteins um, and we looked at the urine. And you would expect that if it's reduced filtration that you wouldn't see hardly any BA in the urine of CKD patients, when in reality we did. And in fact, it was increased, um, not to the same extent as we noted in the serum, but it was high in the urine of CKD patients. And so this would suggest that it's the other way around, that it goes up in the serum and we're beginning to see more of it in the urine. Um, the other thing I will say is if you look at um, the um, a MAC, um, uh, C5B through 9, um, which is, you know, the, the end um, point, I guess, of alternative pathway of, of complement activation, you will see that that was significantly increased in patients with CKD. So this does suggest that the detectable factor D, BA, and MAC are not idle, that these are part of a chain in uh, the alternative complement pathway activation. Um, in addition, you know, we just ran simple correlation analysis to see if any of these fragments correlated with each other, and we did um, the, the light green color is the p-values, and so for the most part, there was quite a bit of uh, correlation um, with, uh, within um, BA and all the other uh, members of, of complement, indicating that this was um, true complement activation. Subsequently, um, we took our BAFMD measurements, the brachial artery flow mediated dilation, and evaluated whether it correlated with complement fragments BA. And it did. It's not, you know, a, a rip-roaring strong correlation, but the p-value is significant. And again, remember, we only had 30 subjects in each group. Um, and what we found is that as um, BA levels go up, um, brachial artery flow mediated dilation goes down, suggesting that higher levels of complement activation in the alternative pathway correlate with um, worse vascular function. The other thing is we looked at um, CKD epi-EGFR, um, and this was a very, very impressive correlation. Higher BA levels correlated strongly with lower um, GFR. Additionally, um, there was a strong correlation with albuminuria, so higher um, BA fragment levels correlated with higher albumin-creatinine ratio levels. Um, and, you know, and, and Josh and I kept talking about, well, how can we possibly show a mechanistic link? Um, and I have to say, this is a, looks like a simple figure, but a lot of work went into it. So his lab went ahead and uh, generated a factor D antibody. I won't go into all the specifics of that, but they ba basically have a, a mouse uh, model 
um, that um, had the targeted deletion um, of the gene for factor D. They immunize it with purified human factor D and generate antibody. And then they go through a lengthy process by which they verify that they make sure it inhibits factor D and then they, they extract it um, and they generate um, a considerable amount of it. And then what, what he did is they basically utilized um, a C3 um, deposition um, assay um, where they basically just evaluate um, the deposition of, um, um, of C3. Um, and this is um, factor D deficient serum. Um, so if you have you know, no factor D and no anti-factor D, there is no C3 deposition, indicating no activation um, of complement. Um, factor D deficient serum will not do it, obviously. Um, if you add factor D then to the factor D deficient serum, you can observe significant um, C3 deposition, indicating that you have activated complement. And when they applied their um, anti-factor D antibody, this was attenuated significantly, although it did not go all the way down to zero. And so we took that information, we, we took the information we learned from here, and then the next experiment utilized our um, microparticles that we extracted from CKD patients. Um, and you can see that this is the baseline level with factor D deficient um, serum. Um, with um, Once you add in the microparticles extracted from the CKD patients, you have significant C3 deposition, um, indicating significant activation. And then you toss on the anti-factor D antibody, and that is significantly attenuated back to baseline. Um, when you utilize the control microparticles, you really don't see that same signal. This figure just basically shows that um, looking at the microparticles um, and staining with anti-factor D, um, we were able to show that factor D was detectable on the microparticles. So, so in summary, sorry, just let me... Um, do this. So in summary, what we have observed is that factor D is increased in patients with chronic kidney disease in the plasma and in the circulating microparticles, while factor H levels remain unchanged. We believe this increase in factor D does result in activation of the alternative pathway of complement in patients with CKD, as is evident by the increase in um, circulating BA levels. Um, we, considering the fact that we found complement fragments to be A correlated with biomarkers of kidney disease and with reduced endothelial function, we started to wonder, is it possible that the alternative pathway of complement contributes to vascular disease and CKD progression in patients with chronic kidney disease? Um, and I will say the major limitation we have had up until this point is it's a small study, 30 patients. Um, is this going to be reproducible? Um, you know, there's not really a very strong pathophysiological uh, bench science behind um, this observation. And then we got lucky. We got to, together with um, Dr. Richard Smith um, last year. Um, and it turned out that um, Richard's group who they are focused on studying C3 glomerulopathy, had looked at patients with uh, C3G. They had recruited 30 patients or so with end-stage kidney disease and 30 without any CKD. 
and they had measured their factor D levels and their factor H levels, and they had measured their BA levels. Their work was all done in the circulation, not in microparticles. Um, and here is what's interesting, you know, they, they showed their data and their publication as high BA versus low BA, but all of those here had end-stage kidney disease, and all of those in the low BA group had no evidence of CKD. And so they found what we found, elevated levels of factor D, um, not much of a change. They, they did observe a little bit of a higher level of factor H, but really not quite as impressive as the increase in factor D. And then they looked at the ratio of factor D to factor H, and they observed that that was really significantly elevated in those who had high BA levels, which if you understand how that pathway works, that does make sense. Um, the other thing they did is they looked at the factor D to factor H ratio and they showed a um, strong uh, negative correlation with C3 levels and C5 levels. This is intact C3 and intact C5, which is indicative of consumption um, of both of these um, complements, which would also be an indirect indicator of activation of the alternative complement pathway. I should say also that the C3GN in these patients was not active, so they had been treated and they had uh, no clear evidence of active disease. So then they basically conducted a series of very elegant experiments. It made me wish that I was still at the, at the bench um, where they um, took an animal model, um, complement factor um, H um, knockout and complement factor D knockout. So these mice express neither factor D nor factor H. Um, and in the, the first series, you know, they, they gave um, and this is an animal model that does develop a glomerular phenotype consistent with C3G, um, where there is activation um, of the alternative complement pathway. And they, they gave both factor H and factor D at variable dosages intraperitoneally. And the, the top part shows C3 deposition in the glomerulus and how it decreases um, with increasing dosages of factor H, which you would expect and then they gave factor D intraperitoneally, and they showed that around 2.5 micrograms per kilogram, you begin to see an increase in the deposition of C3 in the glomerulus. Then they looked at the circulation. And here, what they did is they looked at the factor D dose, um, and they measured intact C3 levels. And you know, even within a very small dose of, of factor D, 0.1 microgram per kilogram, you can see evidence of um, complement activation. They did a time course, so four to six hours is when this effect peaks, and then they proceeded to give these mice, all of these mice got one microgram per kilogram of factor D intraperitoneally, so a very small dose of that factor D that will activate the alternative complement pathway, and then they gave gradually increasing doses, dosages of factor H to see what dose of factor H you would need to inhibit complement activation secondary to factor D. And what they found is that you need about 30 micrograms of factor H, um, 30 micrograms per ml, to inhibit this, this robust um, effect of, uh, of AP activation that you see with one microgram per kilogram of, of factor D. Um, they confirmed that the ratio 
um, correlates with D3 consumption and activation of complement. And then in this last figure, they gave 100 micrograms per kilogram of factor D. Um, and even compared to one, so they had two groups of mice, one got one, one got 100. And they uh, gave them their high dose, um, 50 micrograms per ml of factor H. And you can see that once factor D is given in a very large amount, even um, a large dose of factor H was not sufficient to suppress alternative complement activation mediated by factor D. So their conclusion actually from this was that you only need a little bit of factor D to activate the alternative pathway of complement. And you really need a lot of factor H in order to counter that effect. And so this was really helpful in advancing our hypothesis. And I think it added evidence to what we are thinking. Um, and so we still note that factor D is increased when the GFR drops. Um, this results in an increase in the factor D to factor H ratio, which results in activation of the alternative complement pathway. We still believe um, that um, this detection of uh, BA and the fact that it correlated so strongly with biomarkers of kidney disease and reduced endothelial function um, suggests that perhaps it does play a role um, in CKD progression and in cardiovascular disease in CKD patients. Um, the other thing that's interesting in, about this topic, which has emerged in the last couple of years, is that there are many agents that are currently in development that would inhibit either factor D or the complement um, fragment BA. These are not available yet, um, but if they were to become available, and if our hypothesis is correct, then we would be positioned to evaluate um, you know, the role of this pathway in patients with CKD. And so with that, we decided to put a grant in together. And this is our overall hypothesis. Um, we believe that um, the alternative pathway results in endothelial dysfunction and inflammation, which contribute both to cardiovascular and CKD. We believe that with chronic kidney disease, there is a reduction in GFR that results in an increase in factor D, which tips the balance. Um, in favor of alternative complement pathway activation, further contributing to endothelial dysfunction, which would result in CKD progression and in higher rates of cardiovascular disease. Um, the other thing that we decided we needed to look at is, you know, there's all of these common and rare genetic variants of factor H, which are known to associate with kidney disease, particularly hemolytic uremic syndrome and C3 glomerulopathy. And so we felt like it was important to evaluate genetic variants of factor H and whether they would modify the degree of um, AP activation. So in other words, it may be that not everybody who has an increase in factor D is going to have um, significant uh, activation of the alternative pathway of complement. And it may be that there has to be um, an additional um, hit, if you will, where there may be a genetic predisposition to AP activation. Um, and this aim is, is doable because um, Richard Smith's group is actually um, very capable of doing these genetic analyses that are above my uh, pay grade. Um, but they had um, screened a very large number of common and rare complement factor H variants um, from uh, the GNOME AD da database. Um, and they furthermore are able to take those um, variants and evaluate whether they um, alter the function um, of complement through a variety of assays. 
um, and they basically, you know, reported um, or provided us with preliminary data with all of these um, variants that they believe um, are pathogenic. So, so how would we test our hypothesis? So what we are proposing in this application um, is to get samples from two large clinical trials, um, SPRINT and Nephron-D. Um, and I'm sure everybody knows what SPRINT is. It's the study that looked at intensive uh, lowering of systolic blood pressure. It recruited patients at increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but excluded those with diabetes. Um, they um, have very well characterized um, um, cardiovascular outcomes in addition to serial and periodic measurements of GFR. Um, of the over 9,000 subjects that they followed for three point some years, they had um, over 2,600 who had um, chronic kidney disease with a GFR of less than 60. Um, Nephron-D enrolled approximately 1,400 patients. They had type 2 diabetes um, with a uh, uh, evidence of um, overt nephropathy, uh, macroalbuminuria, and uh, chronic kidney disease. They required that everybody be taking glosartan, and then they randomized them to either lisinopril or placebo. So, so this study looked at the dual therapy of ACE and ARB versus ARB alone. Um, it was a mostly a CKD progression um, study, so the primary endpoint was CKD progression. However, they also had obtained and characterized quite nicely um, their cardiovascular endpoints. And of those um, 1,400 subjects who they who, subjects who they had followed for 2.2 years, um, close to 900 had a GFR of less than 60. And so in AIM-1, what we are proposing to do is to evaluate the distribution of factor D levels relative to factor H in individuals with CKD and to evaluate the potential thresholds above which um, uh, we notice AP activation. Really what we're thinking we're going to find is as factor D to factor H ratio goes up, um, complement fragment B A levels go up. But we're going to measure everything. So we're going to measure all of these complement fragments. We're also going to measure intact C3 and C5. Um, and uh, Josh's lab is going to conduct a bunch of functional assays as well. Um, this is going to be done in the pooled cohort, so all of those subjects with CKD from both SPRINT and Nephron-D will be looked at. And we're planning on utilizing several linear regression models, adjusting for demographics and cardiovascular risk factors. Um, the first analysis, we will be looking at factor D to factor H ratio as the predictor, but we're also going to do the analysis with the complement fragment BA. Um, AIM-2. Um, we are going to, there's two components to A and to B, and in 2A we're proposing um, to evaluate if plasma BA levels independently predict cardiovascular disease in these CKD patients, aim to B will evaluate progression of uh, CKD. Um, and that will be based off of the longitudinal follow-up data um, that both of these studies have. Um, and we're going to start with the plasma BA here, but we're also planning on um, repeating the analysis with the factor D to factor H ratio as the predictor. Um, oh, 
and and so just um, just to give you the outcomes definition, so the composite cardiovascular disease outcome is going to be myocardial infarction, stroke, heart failure, and death from cardiovascular disease. These are all outcomes that were well characterized in both studies. Um, and then to look at CKD progression, we're going to do the first occurrence of a change in GFR defined as greater than 50% decline um, or end-stage kidney disease or death. Um, AIM-3, um, we're going to determine the distribution of genetic variants and complement factor H gene in patients with CKD. And the plan here is to take this pooled cohort of CKD patients um, you know, after we've measured their BA levels, we're going to characterize them into the lowest quartile of BA and the highest quartile of BA, and then we are going to, to conduct the genetic analysis um, for uh, rare and common variants of uh, complement factor H. Um, our goal here is just to basically see if there is a higher prevalence um, of um, any one or more than one of these genetic variants in the group of patients with the highest levels of, uh, of BA. Um, and then, you know, we will decide um, furthermore if we do need to do additional functional analyses. So our expected findings are for AIM-1 that we will observe a high factor D to factor H ratio, that this will correlate with higher plasma BA levels, but also possibly with higher levels of the complement fragments BB, C3C, and MAC, um, in addition to increased activity in the serum based on the complement um, activity assays. Uh, we think it is possible that C3 and C5 will be reduced due to consumption, although we think that that is probably uh, less likely to be observed. In AIM-2, um, we expect baseline BA levels will predict cardiovascular disease and CKD progression. Um, and we actually think this will be the better biomarker. Uh, I will say Richard Smith does not agree with this, but that is what I believe. Um, we expect higher BA will be a, a better readout um, because it really, you know, you have to have um, that increase in factor D to factor H and you have to have the, the right um, circumstances, including possibly the genetic polymorphisms that result in a drive of alternative pathway activation and inc increase BA. Um, and then in AIM-3, we expect that the highest um, quartile of BA will be enriched for rare and common variants of uh, in the complement factor H gene as compared to quartile um, one. Um, the innovation is, well, this will be the first large study to characterize the alternative pathway in CKD. Um, it will evaluate in a very large sample size, which is adequately powered, whether these biomarkers are predictive of uh, cardiovascular disease or kidney disease progression in our patient population. Um, we will be evaluating both plasma and microparticle levels of these biomarkers. So we're definitely planning on measuring factor D and factor H in the microparticles, but we're also going to do everything as well in the plasma. And the reason behind this is I'm just showing you a snapshot of this is, uh, I, I don't have the names of the proteins, but this is the, these are all the same proteins um, amongst the healthy and the CKD patients. This is in the microparticles, this is in the plasma. And just if you look at this snapshot, you can see what we're detecting in the plasma is very different from what we detect in the microparticles. Um, and I, I do not know whether the microparticles are a, uh, a sensitive or specific biomarker of, of any of these derangements that we have observed, but I think it is worthwhile looking 
um, um, and utilizing both approaches. Um, and in addition, no study to date has evaluated the prevalence of the genetic variants of complement factor H gene in patients with uh, non-immune mediated CKD. Um, and that, that's basically it. Future directions are functional assays to evaluate. Um, if we discover any of these novel polymorphisms, um, we may do additional observational studies um, to look at specific genetic variants and whether they predict CVD or CKD progression. And then, like I said, there are several therapeutic agents that target the alternative pathway being developed. If they are available, we may conduct preclinical or clinical trials to evaluate whether any of these therapies may modify vascular dysfunction in patients with um, CKD. And uh, that's basically it. Like I said, most of this work was funded by a grant from the American Heart Association. Uh, I have to acknowledge Lonnie Perno and, and Emily Andrews. They were my uh, coordinator and my uh, bench lab person who did all of this work in, uh, in Denver, recruited the patients and processed their samples. And Lonnie interpreted all of the BAFMDs at the time. Um, the ICTS over there is the, the equivalent for the clinical research unit where we measured vascular function. Um, and then I, you know, I have to acknowledge Josh, um, Richard, with, without Richard, we really wouldn't have been able to put a grant application together. Um, and Michelle Chanchel is my former mentor in, in Denver, and he's one of the sprint investigators. And he was extremely instrumental in, in helping us secure approval um, to get to those, uh, those samples. And that's all I had for today. So, okay. so this is Larry Hunsaker, and uh, I want to say hello to all of my colleagues in the uh, renal division. Uh, I haven't been a re regular attender of these things, but I had a particular interest in this one because as I talked to Diana about at the beginning, uh, as it just happens by sheer chance, I was the person who discovered factor D back in 1969, I think it was. It was when I was at the Peter Brigham at the very beginning of my tour. I do have, as it, it's, all of my colleagues will know that it's hard to shut me up, so I do have three comments. Okay. The, first is, the first is that you have uh, commented that there was no obvious uh, physiological reason for the elevation of factor D in, uh, in renal failure. But one of the things that comes from my actually having worked with factor D is the, it is an unusual protein in that it is very small. It's only about, I think it's uh, somewhat between 25, I don't remember the exact measure, but 25 Daltons. And it would normally be expected to be uh, cleared by the kidney very efficiently. And one of the puzzles that we had at the beginning is why the heck is this stuff still in the circulation when it's so small? And <clears throat> it's a possibility that your micro vesicles are uh, a reason for it because it may, it has to have been attached and circulating to something. However, even if that's the case, it will have some dissociation so that you would expect that the clearance would be markedly impaired in patients with uh, renal insufficiency. And there is a clear, uh, and given the fact that the, uh, that the alternative pathway is a normal tick over kind of a thing, it is inevitable that if there is a higher level of factor D, there will be a higher level of tick over. So you have a perfectly good physiological reason for this. The second comment I would make <clears throat> is that um, 
there are other reasons for complement activation in uh, renal failure, as you probably, and you, you haven't discussed it, and it's not part of your hypothesis, but I'd be a little cautious to say that this is the, uh, the first time that that's been discussed because it's been well understood that due to the increased ammoniogenesis in the kidneys of the remnant kidneys, you know, that there is activation of complement because ammonia is a complement activator also. So you have to make sure in your discussion that you're aware of this uh, 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 impact of, uh, of uh, the uh, acidification methods and so forth on activation of complement. The third comment I would make, um, well, actually I have four. The third comment I would make is that one of the risks that you run if you want to make BA your primary um, thing that you're looking at is that, as you've already implied, uh, this is a complicated thing because it not only will be higher if there is activation of, factor of the alternative pathway, but it'll also be higher because it's also a small molecular weight protein that gets filtered. And so you're going to have two things that are working against each other that you're going to have to be able to uh, sort out so that a little bit more um, recognition of, uh, of uh, Richard's uh, suspicion that you'll get better information from the bigger proteins that aren't cleared by the kidney sure. may, be, may be worthwhile. <clears throat> and the final thing I would say, and this is of course the, the, the thing that always comes at the end, you talked about how it may well be that complement activation uh, is pathogenic in the cardiovascular disease. All of what you have discussed is association. There is no way to say whether the complement activation has anything to do with the progress. Um, it may just be a, uh, a, a, an accommodant. Now, this isn't to criticize you because the first thing is to find out whether there is an association between increased complement uh, activation and cardiovascular and progression renal disease, but then it's going to wait on a specific inhibitor of complement to be able to determine whether knocking out complement activation in humans um, will have the same effect that the twiddles that you and uh, Richard have done with the, the mice will be repeated. That is to say, is this actually pathogenic, which it may well be, or is it uh, simply a, a, a common factor? So those are my the major comments I have. I will make actually one-fifth comment, which is that um, I have spoken with Richard about another interesting issue with respect to complement and transplantation. Uh, which is vaguely related to this business with the importance of the complement inhibitors. Because uh, in chronic, so-called chronic rejection or in uh, antibody-dependent rejection, one of the anomalies that we know about is that there is a very inconstant relationship between the uh, complement-fixing auto uh, 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 anti-HLA antibo anti, uh, antibodies and the amount of disease. And one of the hypotheses that I have had in the past is that this is related to differences in the inherited uh, complement inhibitors, that the people who are able to deal with the activated complement because they have a good inhibitors develop uh, antibody uh, uh, tolerance rather than 
rejection. But that's really got nothing to do with your thing. But the, the, the four points that I would make are there is a pathogenetic mechanism. Well, so, so going back to that, I think I misspoke. I, uh, I agree with you. Factor D does go up with, uh, with reduced filtration. Um, and um, BA definitely also does increase to some extent with, with filtration. Um, and I, what I was trying to allude to is actually that there is what, what you mentioned, the, the third or fourth comment, I, I can't remember was, whether it was the third or the fourth, but that there really is not a strong pathophysiological link between complement activation and cardiovascular disease. So our data is all association work, um, and we really are missing that uh, strong connection. I, I completely agree. I also, I don't disagree um, with, uh, um, with, with Richard that um, BA may, may turn out not to be the, the most important predictor. So we are going to adjust for baseline GFR um, in uh, all of the analysis we are proposing. I suspect that will attenuate the um, associations that we see some um, hopefully not completely, but that's part of why we're also going to repeat all of these analyses with the factor D to factor H ratio, because the truth yep. of the matter is we really don't know what we're going to find. Um, so I, I, I do agree with you. Diana. Yeah. This is Massimo. Um, yes, hi Massimo. What is the rationale of, of testing both the lowest quantile and the highest quantile? Uh, for for um, BA? Yeah. Well, I think that's um, some of that has to do with the cost. So if we were to run the genetic variants for all of the samples that we have, that would be prohibitive. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, and this was Richard's suggestion, and I thought it made a lot of sense, actually. Take those who had the lowest levels, take those who had the highest levels and compare. Yeah. And then, you know, once you identify um, any genetic variants, then you can try to hone in a little bit more on whether... Um, you know, you do need to evaluate additional samples from the patients. In it, the, no, no, in the it, it, it does make perfect sense because you are, the way you're doing, it's like you are pretty much trying to enrich your sample Correct. with genetic, with genetic Correct. The My question is, uh, if you do both quantiles, though, you expect two different directions of your, uh, or your polymorphism. So, whereas I would guess that your, the effect of the polymorphism will go towards the loss of function or, or gain of function, one of the two. Yes. So, I, I, I would just mention in this because uh, just consider that and yeah. keep that in mind. Yeah, actually, that is a very good, uh, good thought, Massimo. And I, I don't think we mentioned that um, in the application, but that is true. We would probably expect to see more loss of function in the factor H polymorphisms in the highest quartile of, yeah. uh, of BA. Um, and I actually, that is a fair point because I don't, I don't think, um, now that I think of it, I don't think that we made that clear. Okay, just wanted to mention to you. Yeah, thanks. Hey Diana, I had a couple of questions sure. for you. Uh, this is great, thanks for uh, presenting this. This is kind of showing us, you know, it's doable. Let's get an idea and then uh, make it into something very meaningful. Um, I, a couple of questions. The first one is when you showed uh, the JCI paper of, um, uh, of Dr. Smith, uh, so in his CKD patients, all of those were C3G, right? Yes. So he has a strong rationale for high FD, factor D. In yours, uh, how many of the 30 patients, I mean, did, we, did you obviously you knew the cause of CKD? 
are any of them see the almost so um let me go back to the so we basically excluded anybody um who had been on immunosuppression in the last year and that's sort of our our blanket exclusion criteria to filter out anybody with uh, glomerulonephritis that might have been active and i will tell you the majority of our patients probably had um, just run-of-the-mill um, vascular, you know, related CKD, secondary to aging, hypertension, diabetes. Um, I don't show it here, but a good number of our patients actually had pre-existing cardiovascular disease as well. Okay, so you're pretty sure that they didn't have incidental C3G. I mean, no, no, no. Yeah, no. And the second question I had is, you mentioned factor D is produced by adipocytes, and you know, like with BMIs, I know that you excluded BMI 40, but how many of your you know, patients had, you know, a BMI 30 to 35. And then, you know, there's also abdominal waist circumference is the, actual, is the better way to measure obesity now in the field of obesity, because, you know, yeah. it can be erroneous. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that 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 is a very good question. You know, obviously, our N, you know, equals 30 is too small, right, um, to be able to look at all of these. And I, I said this at the outset, you know, we have obviously a lot of confounding right. within our CKD population. Um, and whether there is increased um, levels of, uh, um, of factor D because of uh, obesity in these patients, uh, I really couldn't, uh, couldn't tell you. You know, Diane, there is another, yeah. the, the, the discussion of obesity brings up another point, and I can't remember the name of the man, but there, there was a uh, conference earlier this year from a man who is at Cornell uh, that in fact, it turns out that factor D is the same as another name of it is a, a lipo-related um, factor that, it, that has a major effect on diabetes. And so that's another causal link. I mean, factor D has many names and many functions. I, if you can remember the name. <laughs> You could, you, I, uh, I don't remember the name, and I think it was in a, uh, an endocrine conference that the man, he was. Um, he spoke, okay. You could ask, um, the, well, ask Dale. I'm sure he'd remember yeah, yeah, it if yeah, it was in, yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Thanks. Factor D keeps popping up all over the place. I won't say all over, but it's, it's, it, is not just simply one thing as what we thought it was back in 1969. Yeah, I think that what you said, you know, so that is something we actually hadn't considered, that, um, that it's a small molecule, it should be filtered, why does it hang around? Um, and we really hadn't considered the fact that um, it's being attached to the microparticles may be part of why um, it, uh, it hangs around. I think that that's actually very interesting. And that may be um, part of why we, you know, we we just detected it. Um, yeah. Um, well, for sure. Um, yeah. The, it, I don't know how it partitions onto your microparticles. Um, it has to be bound to something, and I'm not sure that microparticles are the only thing that it's bound on in in circulation, but there's got to be something that is retaining it because otherwise it would just pee right out of the body in no time flat and nobody would have any of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, that's a very interesting topic and um, I congratulate you. You put it together oh, very you. rationally and I oh, hope that the you. NIH uh, 
thinks that it's as interesting as, as uh, Lama and I and a lot of other people think it is. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see. The <laughs> it doesn't have any COVID-19 in it, so. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> a really nice story, Diana. You put I mean, a, a simple question into like a full-blown application looking at like Sprint and Nephron D. That's amazing. Yeah, thanks, Lama. I appreciate it. All right, everybody. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yeah. And thank you for your comments. I really appreciate it. Larry, it was nice to see you. Yeah, well, if you, you know, keep in touch. I, I, I'm interested in this, and well, I am still. If they, listen, if they discuss my application and score it, I'll send you the reviewer comments. Okay. <laughs> and I'll send you my revised.